is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's God's word. Amen. You can be seated. A couple quick announcements and then the kiddos can be dismissed. Um, We have reset up that meal train for Bob and for Kathy. Um, So please sign up for that. I think there's only one on the list right now, um, and they do need more. Um, So there's an email that has the link for that. Just if you can, we'd love you to keep signing up and tell your friends, so to speak, um, or those who aren't here, that we could just continue to support them in in this time. Again, if you're not on the email list for some reason, um, you can get that from from Ted. Um, and I wanted to pray about a couple things. Obviously, Bob and Kai, Bob and Kathy, and what's going on there. But Brad also had surgery this last week. He's, he's doing good, but tired um, and worn out. And we just need to pray for his recovery as well. So if you join me in prayer, Father, we do just recognize that you are our God. Um, you are the God over overall, the God over hospice, God over colds like mine and the kiddos at home, God over surgeries. Um, you are the sovereign God who is good. You are our King. And we ask that you would help us again from, from colds to hospice to surgeries to everything else going on in people's lives, some spoken, some unspoken in the room today, um, that we just recognize that you are our God and you are our helper. And so would you help each, each one, each one here and those who are not here. I also ask that you would speak today, that it would be your word and your truth that is spoken. Again, where anything that I say that would be wrong, that um, people would discard that, um, that you would discard that by your Holy Spirit, that what is true would be cemented in the hearts of, of all. Um, help us to believe what you say about your world, about our bodies, In Jesus' name, amen. So, kiddos, you're dismissed. There we go.
So we will be in the chapter and verses that I just read. So if you want to open your Bibles there, if you're not already, or Kindles or iPads, whatever. Corinthians, here we come. So we live in an increasingly disembodied world, a disembodied world. We're practically part cyborg, right, with devices that are attached to our hands and limbs. We live with one foot in the digital world and another foot in the physical world. So it's kind of like we walk two realms. COVID accelerated some of that. Um, We could meet technologically in digital spaces with significant events like doctor's appointments, like work and meetings, even play or board games or video games, and even, as we saw, church. And not all of this is a bad thing. But it's leading to a devaluing of the human body. Conversations happen over text messages or through social networking. Even some of the most important conversations can be delivered through that, like news of of death or news of argumentation or disagreements can happen digitally. Sex happens digitally through the anonymous viewing of pornography anywhere, anytime, with anything you can imagine. Meetings through Zoom for work happen digitally. We can project and perform one piece of our lives of what we would like ourselves to look like in digital spaces, and then we can live a completely different life in actual, physical, real-life spaces. We can use AI. I don't know if you've seen that lately, about all this push for AI. We already had online search and now we have AI where we can access the best of human knowledge through the second brain of the Internet. We don't even need embodied teachers anymore or students in a classroom. You just do it all through YouTube or whatever else. And some of these things that I've mentioned, of course, are wicked, are sinful and wrong. Other things can be beneficial and helpful. Some are neutral These are all aspects of modern life, but all of them have a way of superseding the body or at least isolating an experience with just the one body at home alone in your room. And as Christians, we need to recognize that we are people that celebrate and affirm the goodness of the human body. The human body is good. Easter We just celebrated that. Easter itself teaches us that the bodily resurrection of Jesus coronated the divine goodness of the human body. We already knew that from Genesis 1. We saw it again at the resurrection of Christ. The body is good. Our humanity, our maleness, our femaleness is the wonder of creation, the pinnacle of creation. And so the Apostle Paul believes this and he preaches this to the Christians in Corinth to undercut false narratives, cultural scripts, slogans that were there among them. And he believed that the resurrection is not just a lofty kind of mystical truth, but it's practical truth. It's lived truth, embodied truth. The historical fact that Jesus is the once dead, now alive, authoritative king of the world who is coming again and who will bring a new heavens and a new 
earth matters for the here and now. It matters for your entire physical life. And so Easter, according to the Holy Spirit, inspired by Paul, has everything to do with your body and therefore everything to do with sex. And it tells another story than the ancient cultures were telling or contemporary cultures are telling. There are many lies now, just as there were lies then, about what it means to be a human being and about what it means to be a sexual person. And so that's what Paul is confronting here. He, in the first verse, begins confronting cultural lies about freedom and about the future. Okay? He's confronting cultural lies about freedom and the future. If you notice, in the ESV and in several other translations, there's a lot of points throughout this passage where there are quotation marks. And you'll see them here. Now, there's debates about where these quotation marks should be, about when is Paul quoting them and when is Paul talking himself. But if you look at your Bible in front of you, you will see some quotation marks. And so what he's doing is he's kind of quoting back at them ancient slogans, ancient cultural scripts. And the first one is, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So this is the issue of freedom. And so one thing that they could have been saying at that point is some of them may have been spinning some of what Paul had said to them. Christians are free. You're free in Christ. You don't have to follow the law. And they could have been kind of putting a spin on that as twisting the gospel of grace, saying, hey, you can just kind of do whatever you want out in life because you're saved. You're forgiven. Who cares? Do what you do what you want. And he's confronting that twisted view of Christian freedom. But it could also just be that you're free to do whatever you want with your body. And of course, there are current versions of this even now. Things like, no one can tell me what to do with my body. That's a popular one. Or ones like, you are enough. The We've talked about it before, the autonomous, kind of a fancy word for it, the autonomous individual, that there's nothing higher than yourself. You are a totally free individual person. You have your own authority. You can create what you want to create. You can do what you want to do. And he is confronting that kind of a lie as well, that you are not only autonomous in and of yourself, that that is a lie. And so he is dealing with this issue of false freedom. And so for Paul, he says, hey, all things are lawful for me. Okay, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Because here's the thing about freedom. There's never ultimate freedom. You're going to serve somebody. Right? You're going to serve somebody. You've probably heard some people even now are confronting this even on YouTube, podcasts, the Internet, on issues of discipline. You might have heard the phrase, discipline equals freedom. This idea that when you actually put self-imposed restraints, that can actually be a freer lifestyle because we have a tendency to be given over to other things because we're not just these free people that just can kind of do whatever they want. The things that we do can 
enslave us, that untrammeled liberty is non-existent, we're going to serve somebody. And one of the things that Greek thinkers thought they were cool with was sex outside of marriage. Here's a quote from a Bible background commentary. Many Greek thinkers, however, reason that sex without marriage, and the fancy word for that is fornication, was fine as long as it did not control a person. So again, that's the issue going on here. As long as it doesn't control a person, the more vulgar cynics even even relieve their sexual passions publicly. For most Greek men under the age of 30, heterosexual sex was most available with slaves or with prostitutes. Roman law permitted prostitution and it forbade fornication only if both parties were of aristocratic birth. So there was this issue that, hey, you were sexually free. And especially the men. Most of this passage is confronting men and female prostitutes. And prostitution because that's a lot of what's going on in this particular passage. And so Paul is saying something else. He's saying, hey, not everything is good. And we're not to be dominated by anything. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now this is one of the areas where some translations have quotations around like the ESV, just the first part. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But it could also be that that next part, and God will destroy both one and the other, should be within the quotation marks. It could be him quoting a slogan back to them. And I think that that's probably the case because of the context. Because in verse 14, he starts talking about the resurrection of the body and not the destruction of the body. And again, to get, remember, it's very important to kind of get what is Paul writing to the original thinkers. We always want to go to the original thinkers first before we make application now. And so in paganism, in Greek thought, the immortality of the soul is what mattered, not the body. It's that the soul went on forever. And so they were kind of saying, you know what? What you do in your body doesn't really matter that much. It's all going to be destroyed anyway. You're going to kind of live forever in just this immortal soul. And that food and sex were just kind of physical activities unrelated to the future Um, unrelated to the afterlife. And so Paul is engaging that pagan, Greek, and even Gnostic argument, and he's confronting it. What did the Gnostics do? That's that's the people that kind of talked about um, um, a secret inner knowledge that only certain people would access, and it devalued the body, that the material world was kind of evil or bad, or that what happened in the material world did not matter that much. Because again, all that matters is the the Stoics would say, the inner citadel of the soul. It's kind of the inside. It's not what happens in the body. And unfortunately, like I've talked about before, Christians and fundamentalists sometimes adopt similar ideas, and it's false. Paul and the resurrection Easter teaches us that the body matters. And so what could be happening here is he's quoting the slogan of food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. He's saying, hey, that's false. That's a cultural script. That's a narrative in your worldview that is not correct because it lies about the future. So again, we had a lie about freedom. Now we have a lie about the future. It's not that just you're going to be some immortal soul floating with a harp up in the sky. 
but that the body and the resurrection of the body is what matters, which he hits in verse 14 clearly. Excuse me, I get some more water real quick. Apologize for all the throat clearing. It's probably going to happen throughout this morning. Um, And I was thinking this kind of slogan happens now. With again the emphasis on science and scientism, and it's just because all that matters is now. Again, the Earth is going to be destroyed; it's all going to be frozen or whatever. The planets are going to, um, the sun's going to do this or that or the other thing, or global warming or all the different climate change and future things are going to happen, and everything's just going to get destroyed. So, just do what you want with your body right now. It's all you have. Well, that's a lie about the future. That's a lie about the future. Paul saying Christians do not embrace that lie. They believe something else about the future, that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a resurrection of the body. Sometimes we can break this up into kind of needs talk, like psychological needs. So the way to human fulfillment is, well, you've got to have food to feed your belly. You've got to have sex to flourish as a human. And so you just do those different desires, however you as an individual person want to do that. And it's fine. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, it's all good to go. And Paul's saying, no, that's a lie. There's something else about the future that we believe as Christians. He has bigger things for the body. The now is informed by the future. The Christian is focused on the lordship of Christ and the future resurrection. So for Paul, sex and sexuality is about different kinds of authority and a different kind of future. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's the term porneia, which we've talked about. Any kind of sexual sin outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And all kinds, specifically here, he's really, as we'll find out later, focusing in on the issue of prostitution. But he's saying, hey, Christians, your bodies are not meant for that, but for the Lord. So what's that word? Lord, Kairos, King. He's the Lord of everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was showing that He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He had authority even over death. That He has all authority has been given to me. Remember He said that when He rose from the dead. Saying, He is King. So, Christians, when they think about their bodies, think about the kingship of Christ and the future resurrection of the body. That the body is ultimately not just about you and what you think and your own authority, but it's about the Lord. It's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. One person said that this whole context is saying that Christians don't believe in the redemption, excuse me, that Christians believe in the redemption of the body, not from the body. We're not escaping the body but we are seeing the body redeemed. And that the Lord is for the body. And the resurrection showed that because Jesus came physical. And so meaning, that's what that word for, that sense of like purpose and meaning. Think about the meaninglessness of our world. And especially with the rise of pornography and such, the the meaninglessness of sex is just an, 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 an act that anybody can engage in. Um, it doesn't really matter who you do it with. It, it, it doesn't really matter what you, what you see, what you do with your body on the Internet or anything like that. But that, that view of meaninglessness lies about what sex is. 
that sex is about union with God, that there is purpose in Christ, that He is where the meaning is found. And that trumps, that is greater than the authority of self, that you don't get to invent that for yourself. So Easter is about your sexuality. Jesus is king over self, and the body will be raised. What's another big issue right now in our culture? Consent. Should be. <laughs> but where do we even get consent from? So right now, pretty much what matters when, when people talk about sex in our culture is it's just about consent. As long as it's consenting adults, then pretty much any kind of sexual activity can happen. But man, if you violate consent, it's a big deal. And that is a big deal. But the reason it's a big deal is because you've been created in the image of God. Otherwise, why is it that big of a deal? What are you as a human being? Why does it matter that much? Well, we're adopting this kind of truth. Then there's something sacred about humanity. So we should consent to it. Absolutely, that's true. But it's even greater than that. It's because it's pointing to this reality. So it's not just sexuality and what I want to do. It's that it's what King Jesus wants us to do. It's that it's what King Jesus says is a yes. What does King Jesus say is a yes about sex? He says in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Not just simply consent of any other kind. But consent matters because we are made in God's image, but we go even further because we believe in the lordship and kingship of Christ even over us. So his yes is our yes. His no is our no. We believe something bigger about human beings and about sexuality. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Again, that's how he engages the argument. God raised the Lord. God raised King Jesus. He's also going to raise you up. And so your body is glorious. It's meant for a glorious future. It's tied to King Jesus. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And so Paul is dealing with a specific issue of porneia, of men using prostitutes, which again was very common in that particular culture. <clears throat> here is some more background on that. One scholar speaking here. If the graffiti on the walls of Pompeii are any indication, prostitution was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. Xenophon, that's a Greek philosopher, couple hundred years before Jesus, records this observation from an Athenian. Quote, Of course you don't suppose that lust provokes men to beget children. When the streets and the stews are full of means to satisfy that, we obviously select for wives the women who will bear us the best children and then marry them to raise a family. So idea, hey, if you want your sexual needs met, all kinds of prostitutes, but women and getting married and children, well, that's about that. But the other stuff, you can satisfy that however you want. It goes on, Athenius cites the adage he attributes to have been first uttered by Apollodorus. That's a Greek philosopher about a hundred years or so before Jesus. Um, This is what he said. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for daily concubinage, but wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property. So those are the kind of views that are circulating at that time. We have it a little different now 
or it's maybe not prostitution, but again, you can kind of do whatever you want with anyone else as long as consent is not violated. And through the vehicle of pornography, you can satisfy pretty much any desire that you want. <clears throat> it was also, prostitution was also a business like any other. This is another biblical background. It was readily available in inns and taverns, and the ranks of prostitutes were especially stocked with slave girls raised from the vast number of abandoned babies. Jews strongly opposed prostitution, although a few engaged in it. And Philo said that it was a capital offense in God's sight, but this Jewish view was hardly the pagan position. Some pagans even considered prostitution a useful deterrent to adultery. And again, we can even see that nowadays with the issue of pornography. Well, hey, you can engage in that. It's not really hurting anybody else. Right? As long as you're not out doing stuff with other people. So there's another lie. Finally, on this issue, one other quote. The socioeconomic context for urban prostitution makes this final case quite different. It potentially involves most of the adult males in the audience, and though Paul does not acknowledge them, female slaves as well. Because again, he's speaking to this people in Corinth, and he's really chasing down this issue for a particular reason. Some of the Christians were probably thinking, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. The body doesn't matter that much. I can kind of do what I want. That is a lie. Why does he say that that is a lie? Because God raised the Lord. He'll raise us up by his power. Because you are for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No way. No way would we do that. Because there is something bigger happening here. One translation put it this way. Do not know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ. So then, would you take those limbs and organs and unite them with the prostitute? He's, he's really painting strong imagery here. And there's emphasis on this word take. And this is important to get the setup of, of why he's speaking in this way. Take is about possession. Is about possession. You can't take a body that is possessed by belongs to and under the authority of Christ and make it possessed by a prostitute. That's the kind of image. It's kind of a handing over of authority. Wait a second, Christians. You are united. You're in union with God, in union with Christ. How can you take your body and unite that with a prostitute? And so fornication hands your body and the body that belongs to the resurrected Christ over to the sinful domain and body of a prostitute. So that's the imagery that is happening here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another big issue here, quoting David Garland. Left unstated throughout this discussion is Paul's assumption that a person is not a combination of incompatible parts, spirit and body held together in an unpleasant tension. As a consequence, sex is something that involves the whole self in surrender to another. In his discussion of sexuality and marriage, this happens later in chapter 7, which we're going to get to. That's kind of a theme for a while, guys. It's the way it is. <laughs> Paul claims that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Is the same true for sexual relations with the prostitute? Does he wish to imply that the Christian comes under the power of the prostitute who becomes his unlawful lord? Sexual intercourse entails the joining together of persons with all their spiritual associations and is not simply the coupling of bodies. 
Again, it's not just the physical, the material. There's something bigger happening. He goes on, The prostitute indiscriminately flings herself at chance customers, but the customer, when captured by her, is also put at her disposal. No prophylactic exists that can protect this unlawful union from extending its defiling tendrils into every part of a person's being. Using a prostitute is not a victimless crime in which no one gets hurt. This sin contaminates and breaches the union with Christ. And so there's this whole issue floating around about it's putting yourself under someone else's control, under someone else's authority. That that is some of what is happening in sexual union. So it's not just about parts of the body. It's about the whole person and all that a person is. Embodied souls. I was even thinking about that song we were singing. Presents our souls to God. And I'm going, yeah, kind of. Kind of true. He actually presents everything that you have to God. Your whole body as well. Washed and sanctified, which that comes from passages earlier that we have been preaching, preaching through. <clears throat> and so, in verses 16 and 17... There's this word joined. Listen to it. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What does that word joined mean? That word join means to glue, to cement. So that is the imagery again. This intense imagery. It's not just, oh, it's a sexual act, just kind of a physical act, and that's all that sex is. No, it's a cementing, a, a gluing, a, a bond that occurs between human beings. It's a physical bond. We see that in Genesis 2.24. If, ha- if you have the ESV, again, there's a little footnote. Or who holds fast. Joining is this picture of holding fast, cementing. Happens in Genesis 2.24 and it happens in Deuteronomy 10.20. And what's interesting about this is that when Paul talks about union, he's talking about both physical and spiritual union. That this joining of physicality is a sexual bond, just like there's kind of a religious, spiritual bond that oftentimes comes up in the Old Testament. Remember how often Paul or or the Old Testament writers will talk about like spiritual adultery or like holding fast and clinging? It talks about this a lot with Solomon. Solomon clung to his wives. He, he cleaved to his wives. He was joined to his wives in all kinds of false, idolatrous ways. And so he views the human heart and the human body in these, in these bonds. <clears throat> and so it's not something that we do with sexual partners. It's also something that we do in the sense of idolatry or with the gods of this world, this holding fast and cleaving that God views the relationship with Him in that kind of union. Deuteronomy 10.20 It's a verse referenced in that footnote. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Again, same word for joined here. Hold fast to Him and by His name you shall swear. That everything about you is committed to the Lord Jesus from your body to your soul. So it is powerful imagery, deep meaning. And so what does he say? 
What does Paul say in light of all these things? So then what should you do? If this is God's view about sex, you should flee sexual immorality. And this is a present imperative. He's saying not just flee once. Like, oh, well, I fleed it once, so I'm good to go now. No, that's not how sexual immorality works, in case you didn't know. It's a, it's a habitual fleeing. It should be this attitude of, no, you flee and you keep fleeing. You run and you keep running. Remember Proverbs. Way back when we did Proverbs. Um, there's a lot of imagery there about lady folly and lady wisdom. And lady folly is kind of viewed in, in, in seductive and prostitution ways. This idea of like, don't go near her house. Run, flee, get away. And so that's the kind of thing that Paul is calling them to. No, you've got to run from this. And you've got to keep doing that. So what do we as Christians do with this kind of thing? We, we run from it. We believe a different truth about the human body. We believe a different view of freedom and a different view of the future. That we are tied to the resurrected Lord Jesus and one day our very bodies will be with Him on a new heavens and a new earth so that what happens now in our bodies matters. <clears throat> so He takes us even, fur- even, even further in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So this reminds us of, of earlier in Corinthians. When we kind of did the, hey, y'all are the temple of the Holy Ghost. But here he's focusing a little bit more on the singular. He's speaking of a singular body. So he's going, hey, you individually, your very bodies are where, remember, the language here isn't just kind of general temple courts. You know, we've got to think in terms of Old Testament and like temples and shrines. This is like the very place, the inner court of where the God dwells. He's saying, hey, you Christians, you are a holy shrine. This is the kind of view that we have about the human body. The Holy Spirit of God indwells in you. So view yourself and view other people as a holy shrine. Of course, those who aren't Christians may say, well, they're not holy shrines. As if, well, no, no. They're also created in the image of God. So there is a beauty and a, and a sacredness to every human being without exception. But even more than that, Christians are indwelt with the very Holy Spirit of God. And so, view yourself, your very body, as a holy shrine where deity dwells. Man, what a, what a picture. What a picture. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? One commentator said, They thought the presence of the Spirit meant a negation of the body. Paul argues the exact opposite. The presence of the Spirit in their present bodily existence is God's affirmation of the body. Again, we've seen that, how the Corinthians are really into kind of lofty knowledge and dividing up in all these factions. And it doesn't really matter that much what you do with your body. As long as I kind of know all the good stuff, then what I do with my body doesn't matter. And like we're the spiritual ones later on with the gifts of the Spirit and we can speak in tongues in all kinds of different ways. And eh, the body's kind of no big deal. And Paul is kind of cutting against that. He's saying, no, no, no. The presence of the Spirit isn't about an escape from the body. The presence of the Spirit indwells you and so your bodily existence, your bodily functions, what you do with your body matters and it is for the Lord. And it is God affirming the beauty of it and to be done according to His yes and to be followed according to His 
knows. So what a, what a picture. And again, the Jewish mind would have also been a big deal here too because think about all their history of, of in the temple and just the sacredness. I mean, you don't mess around with the inner shrine of God. Read the Old Testament and things that happen. You die. And he's saying, wow, in my body, that's the picture? That's a big deal. He even goes further. You are not your own. I'm thinking about that statement. Man, what a, what a countercultural statement that is for us. If that's your memory verse for the day. You are not your own. Walk around with that all day. Speak that to people. See what kind of response you get. Christians believe you are not your own. Oh, that doesn't sound too thrilling. That sounds about as opposite as you can get nowadays. But that's what we believe. You're not your own. You're under a different authority. You belong to somebody else. For you were bought with a price. And this gets even crazier. Because what's the picture here is, self tra- is sex trafficking and slavery. So again, sex is about authority. And in that, at, at that time, <clears throat> you had all of that going on in Corinth. Here's another commentator. They must also recognize that they are not their own. The Lord has full property rights over them. The imagery derives from the slave auction, familiar to Corinthians, because Corinth was a major center for slave trafficking. Paying ransom for the liberation of slaves was also a familiar practice to the ancients. According to the law, those who were ransomed from enemies who had captured them in war became the property of the one who freed them. So... The freedom of the Christian is not just an isolated individual freedom in you and of yourself. It is actually a transfer of ownership. It is saying that we as Christians now belong to somebody else because there is no ultimate freedom. You're either going to belong to the God of this world and the way in which this world works or you're going to belong to King Jesus and His authority. And even... Speaking in that kind of language can almost get you in trouble nowadays. But man, we Christians, we believe something different. We're saying that, wow, we have given up, in a sense, our own authority to the authority of King Jesus and His kingdom and His rule and His reign. You know, we can kind of say words king and say the word kingdom and not actually even really think about what that means. But Paul is saying, hey, you were bought with a price. You are... You're... the." Your rights are no longer your own. They are now under the authority of King Jesus. You belong to somebody different. And so that is the picture that he is painting here. Hey, you are a sacred temple of God and you are His. You're under His authority. So a totally different view of freedom, a totally different view of the future is what we as Christians believe we have been bought with a price. Man, what a, what a picture. So I think I just want to ask us again, is this our view? Is this what you believe? And ask yourself this question, it's, this is way higher. This is way bigger than what contemporary culture is telling us about sex and sexuality. This is something all good. It isn't just, no, don't do that. So yes, it's flee from sexual immorality, 
But again, it's about the why. It's about the for. It's about the pro. What is it for? It's not that God is against the body. He's for the body. He made the body. It's that it's an issue of, of authority. It's an issue of, um, of being united to someone else. And it's, an issue, and it's an issue of our creatureliness that God has made us. And then God has given His own body for us. And so we too give our bodies to God as an act of worship. Right? Living sacrifice. Romans 12. So this is an issue of worship. That's what sex is. That's what using your body is. Is How are you worshiping God? Well, one way we worship is by running. Running from it. So to encourage you to run. If you're having a hard time running, talk to somebody. Get it out into the light. If you're dealing with issues of pornography or anything like that, talk to somebody. Don't just live in shame and isolation. Get it out. Live in the light. Worship God through confession. Because what does He do? He's a loving and a forgiving and a compassionate God. Get it out into the light. Recognize whose you are. Recognize what you are as a believer. And dwelt as the dwelling place of God. And recognize where your body is going. This isn't just going to be discarded. This matters ultimately forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have a big view of the body. And we celebrate it. What do we do? Every week with communion, we take God's body and blood into us. Not to get into all the debates about communion in the church. But it's not just a symbol. It's not just something you oh, want to do. I want to do our little cracker thing and our juice thing and that's, that's it. Jesus gave... There's not a whole lot of things that Jesus said do all the time. And He said do this all the time. Remember, hey, this is my body. This is my blood. You take it in you to remind yourself of you are united to somebody else. You are united to somebody else. They say this is where forgiveness is found for our past. Or maybe even for some of you right now, forgiveness can be found. Repent, turn, flee, trust. He will forgive you. He will free you. And that this is the place where we remember whose we are and who we belong to. And so that's what we are going to do this morning. Celebrate that truth and remember that together. So let's sing again. I think. Oh, there we go.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. <clears throat> 